All right, so we in X. Uh, we're not in 15 yet. 13. 13. I'm trying to stay a little bit ahead, and so I'm getting confused about where we're at. We uh, we did through verse 12 last week, right? Right. All right. So we're gonna do the 13 through. I'd like to get to 41 if we can, just so we'll have the rest of the chapter, chapter 13, to do next week. Um. It's just, it, it's a long section because it is, it is uh, Paul's, it's Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts. And so what we're going to see is that, uh, okay, somebody just summarize what we did last week. That way we can kind of get the flow of what's going on. What happened in the, those first 12 verses, Acts chapter 13? Paul and Barnabas went on a mission. Huh? Paul and Barnabas went on a mission. Yes, Paul and Barnabas went on a mission. What happened? And the sorcerer tried to stop the governor from... That's right. The the magician guy tried to stop the governor from hearing the gospel. And <clears throat> Paul blinded him. By, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, blinded him. And uh, we but saw just that... For uh, just for a season. We saw the uh, <laughs> opposition to the gospel. We saw all that kind of stuff. And so Paul leaves. If you have your, if you got the outline that I texted you, you'll, there's a map on there to kind of show you where everything is that we're talking about. Because it's a lot of cities in Acts mentioned, and sometimes you just kind of read over them because we don't know where them cities are. But if you look at that map, you can kind of trace the route that uh, that Paul went on his journey. He went. Um, we, we talked about he left Antioch, which was in Syria, and he went to the island of Cyprus. He crossed the island of Cyprus, and that's where we were last week. And now. He He's going to leave the island of Cyprus and go up into Asia Minor. The map's in that outline. You can look at it later. And he's going to stop at a couple of cities there. And he's going to go to another city called Antioch. This is not the same Antioch as he came from. This is Antioch, which is in Galatia. And so when you're thinking about the uh, the places where he's at now, he's at the churches in the province of Galatia. And so, you know, we can kind of uh, tie into things that he wrote to the Galatian churches here. But it says, verse 13 says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, that was the city where he talked to the governor that we saw last week, remember? They came to, to Perga in Pamphylia, which is Asia Minor, which is the where Turkey is today. So if you know where Turkey's at. And, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Who is John that departed from them? John Mark. John Mark. Now, we don't know why he left. But this is going to be very important that he left uh, later on when they get ready to go on their second missionary journey. Because it really ticked Paul off that he left. Uh, he and Barnabas are going to end up fighting over whether to bring John Mark with them again the second time because John Mark deserted them the first time. And they're going to fight about it so much that Paul and Barnabas are going to split up and go different ways. Uh, Paul's going to take Silas with him and Barnabas is going to take John Mark with him. Now we don't know why John Mark left, but you can... You know, it's a lot of theories bouncing around. Uh, Barnabas was John Mark's uncle. I don't know if I told y'all that or not. And so Mark could have been, you know, some people think that Mark might have been jealous that Paul was getting all the speaking time, you know, and Barnabas' uncle. That's kind of, I don't know if I'd buy that one or not. 
Uh, it could have been that, you know, the journey was a long, hard journey they were going to have to make. We're talking about 100 miles they walking, you know, and so he just, you know, I'm not in for all this. I'm going back home. Remember, his mother's house was where Peter came after he was released from prison, you remember? And so I, I, for that reason, I don't know, it's, it's probably not right of me, but I always think of John Mark as like a mama's boy. Like, I'm going home to my mama's house, you know. So we don't know why he left. There's all kind of theories about why he decided I'm not going with y'all but we do know that Paul it really ticked Paul off that he uh, left them right when they were about to head off into 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 Galatia and so we're going to see that later on so John Mark leaves them it says but when they departed from Perga they came to Antioch in Pisidia this is Pisidian Antioch it's it's in Galatia it's not the Antioch they came from they went into the synagogue on that Sabbath day and they they sat down Okay, the first thing they do is they go to the synagogue. Why does Paul go to the synagogue in every city that he goes to first? Because he was to preach to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He was to preach to the Jews first and Gentiles. And also it made a good jumping off point because he would preach in the place where these Jews and God-fearers, which were Gentiles, would come and they would hear the gospel and all those kind of things. Now we're going to see his first sermon. This is Paul's first sermon in Acts. And it's a really long sermon, and I don't know if you were here when we did Stephen's sermon way back when, but it's going to be really easy for y'all to get lost in it just because it's so long. And you ever, when you go to read, you know, if I were to stand up and read Paul's sermon to you about halfway through, I could look out and y'all would be like, oh, okay, come on, just get to tell me what it means. What are you talking about? Uh, it's easy to get lost. So what he's going to do... <clears throat> And I need to make sure that you understand this. He is going to connect the dots from Genesis through the Old Testament all the way to Jesus. Okay? So many people think that the Old Testament is just a bunch of old stories that really don't have no relevance today. And now we're all up in the New Testament and it's all good. When the reality is that it's just one big long story. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that were made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Solomon, to all of those men. It all points forward to Jesus. And that's the point of Paul's sermon. He's going to start way back in the time of Abraham. And he's going to go through. He's going to go through the time of the fathers and he's going to skip over to David and all that kind of stuff. But he's going to end up showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And so that's the thing that you need to make sure that you understand. If, if, we, don't, if we don't see all the puzzle pieces fit together of Scripture, uh, then we've kind of missed the point. So, uh, for instance, you know, when you when you're reading, if you're reading your Old Testament, there's still times when I'm reading in the prophets in the Old Testament prophets. Right now I'm reading through Leviticus and studying in that. And, and there's still times where I'm thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I just ain't getting it. I don't understand. Well, the the even even when that happens, you and I need to understand that the point of it is to point toward Jesus. That's the point of all of Scripture. And so even. Even though, you know, it may take some study to figure out what this prophet's talking about and, and what in the world's going on in this section, especially when it's using language you probably uh, aren't used to or whatever. The point of all the, the prophets, the point of all of those things is to point toward Jesus. Peter showed us that in Acts chapter 2. Stephen showed us that in Acts chapter 8 and or Acts chapter 7. And Paul's going to show us this here in, in this, in this uh, passage. Okay? Are you all ready? Is there any questions before we start? Anything? 
<sighs> I wasn't looking forward to this one. This is going to be, we're probably not going to be able to get through it. It's just so long. It says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers, okay, they sat down in the synagogue, Sabbath day, all the people are gathered in the synagogue, they're listening to uh, the, the services in the synagogue. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, ye men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. What would happen was, you, in these synagogue services, what would go on was the people would come in, just like, almost like a church service. And there would be a reading from the Torah, which is the law, the first five books of the Bible. And then a reading from the prophets, which was, you know, all the, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, the prophets. And then someone, a rabbi, a teacher, would stand up and they would give a sermon, like an exhortation. They would explain what we had just read. So it was almost like, like church service, you know, it was kind of like that. Uh, what happens is, though, when there was a traveling rabbi that would come through, he would be, you know, they would be honored to let him speak. And we're not told, maybe Paul came and introduced himself the week before while he was there. Or maybe he just, I always have a picture of Paul. Remember, he was a Pharisee, Paul was. And he was a student under Gamaliel, at which we talked about that way back in, 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 in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Acts. Uh, I, I can imagine Paul throwing all his Pharisee robes on, you know, and, and going into the synagogue and sitting down. And they'll be like, ooh, who is this guy? You know, when they find out he's a student of Gamaliel, they were like, they would probably be honored to let him talk, honored to let him speak. Of course, they didn't, they didn't know what he was going to say, but they would be like, ooh, this, this guy's from Jerusalem. This guy's Pharisee. Let's, let's let him talk. So they sent word over to him saying, him and Barnabas, they said, look, if you've got anything to teach the people, then you stand up and you, and you say, you know, whatever it is. And so he stands up and from, from verse 16 to verse 41 is Paul's sermon. Now, we're probably not going to get through the whole thing just because it's so long. And I'm probably not going to... Each each section talks about something in the Old Testament. So I'm probably not going to spend too much time giving you the Old Testament background of each section and all that kind of stuff. The point you need to know is what does Paul mean by saying it? It's not... Uh, exposition on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those kind of things. It's what is Paul doing here? And what he's doing is <clears throat> he is focusing on God's work in the history of salvation, the history of Israel. He's focusing on God's work. If you look at down through this, we'll, we'll do it here uh, one verse at a time. But the subject of the sentences is always God. God did this. God did that. God did this. God did that. And so what he's going to do is he's going to focus on God's work with Abraham, God's work with David, God's work with the judges, God's work with all these things. And the point that he's going to finally get to is now God has fulfilled everything he said he was going to fulfill in Jesus, and he's going to preach to them Jesus, okay? So let's let's go, and if you have any questions as you go, just please stop me, because this is going to be very, very dry if I have to do all the talking. If I just sit up here and give you a lecture, it's going to be very boring. So please put give me some input as you come. If something you don't understand, something you don't agree with, whatever, just let me know. We'll talk about it. So verse 16 says, Then Paul stood up, beckoning with his hand, uh, he said, men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. Listen to what I'm fixing to say. Who are these two people? Men of Israel and those who fear God. The Jews and the Gentiles. The Jew, huh? The Jews and the Gentiles. That's right. <laughs> who said something? 
Jews and Gentiles. That's right. The Gentiles were the God-fearers. Those that were in the synagogue, they had gone far enough with Judaism, they stopped short of the circumcision. You know, they didn't get circumcised, but they believed in, which, you know, you can understand. You know, it's like, you can be a Jew, you can be one of us, all you have to do is, you want me to cut what? You know, uh, no, they, they wasn't going to do that. <clears throat> and so, it says, this is his sermon, verse 17. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm he brought them out. Uh, verses 7 through 19 are going to be God's work among the fathers. And you need to understand that it's all, he is going to show them that God has always dealt with the people by grace. By grace. God is always, it says God chose Abraham. God didn't, Abraham wasn't a good guy. Abraham wasn't uh, an awesome dude where God looked down and says, you know what, this Abraham guy, he's a, you know, he's a really faithful guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make him my man and I'm going to make a country out of He didn't do that. Abraham was not worthy. Abraham was chosen by God for no reason other than God's goodwill and his good pleasure. Uh, Abraham was an idolater. If you... Uh, Go through, it's, it's Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua is speaking, I think it's verse 2, uh, you can look it up later, but Joshua 24, 2, it says that Joshua's talking to the people and he says that God called our father Abraham out of idolatry, out of idolatry, and there in the Chaldeans they worship the moon and the cycles of the moon and all that kind of stuff, and so Abraham was just a, a normal, everyday, average pagan like anybody else. He wasn't any better, he wasn't good, he wasn't... <clears throat> righteous before God, but God chose our father Abraham. He says, God, uh, God chose our fathers and he exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. That means that he grew them. You remember the promise he made to Abraham? Anybody? What did God promise Abraham? The land of Israel. Well, he promised them a land. He promised what else? He promised them a son. Uh, he'd be the father of uh, first a great nation. Then later he said many nations. And finally he said you'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so he gave Abraham all these promises. You'd be a father of great nation. Be a father of many nations. You'll be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it was in Egypt when, when uh, the people were enslaved that God started fulfilling these promises. He, when it says that he exalted them, that means he grew them. They grew from, <clears throat> if you look right at the beginning of Exodus, it was like 75 people in the, in the house of Israel that came to Egypt. And during that time, during their slavery in Egypt, God grew them to, you know, half a million people. And so he started to fulfill this promise. He exalted them. He grew them in fulfillment of his promise in the midst of their slavery in Egypt. And so already you see God's working by grace. He chose Abraham by grace. He uh, exalted the people while they were in Egypt by grace. They sure didn't deserve it. They were uh, sinning at, you know, at every turn. It says they ex he exalted them in the land of Egypt and with a high arm he brought them out. How did he bring them out. That's an easy one. Come on. Bring them out of Egypt. Through Moses. Through Moses, okay. through miracles, the plagues, and all that kind of. Did they deserve to be brought out of Egypt? No. 
No, it was by grace that he saved the people out of Egypt. And they had no law whatsoever from God until after he had saved them out of Egypt. They brought them to Mount Sinai and then that's where they gave them law. So you see God working by grace. He's working in Abraham. He's working in the people as they're in Egypt. He's working to bring them out uh, of Egypt. Uh, And then in verse 18 it says, And about, about the time 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. What is that talking about? For 40 years they did what? Yeah, they wandered in the wilderness and they disobeyed at every turn. If you walk through that section that's in Numbers, Exodus and Numbers, if you walk through that section, it is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, they saw the pillar of cloud. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw the Red Sea part. They, I mean, they saw the works of God. Bread came down from heaven. He gave them pigeons to eat. Was it pigeons? Yeah, quail. That's it. I was saying, not pigeons. It was quail. He gave them quail to eat. And at every turn, they disobeyed. They denied. They disbelieved. They complained. They whined. How could you have left us out here to die? It would have been better if we go back to Egypt. And he suffered all of that. He was patient with them. After every, every time he would do something for them, whenever they came to an obstacle, they would complain. They would whine. They would say, oh, God has left us out here to die. What's going on? Moses, you know, you should have left us in Egypt. And then God would come through and give them food from heaven. Or God would come through and give them water from a rock. And so they disobeyed, disbelieved continually through this 40 years in the wilderness and God suffered with them. He, When I say suffered with them, He was patient with them. He suffered them disobeying is what I mean. He was patient with them. He was gracious to them. So you see the theme already? Grace started this whole deal. He chose Abraham for no reason. And then grace brought them out of Egypt. They didn't deserve to be brought out of slavery. And then grace kept them as they walked through the wilderness. They were, they were sinning at every turn, disbelieving at every turn. And God was with them, being patient with them, being kind to them. And finally brought them back into the promised land just like He promised, even though they didn't deserve it. And there was nothing about them that was good. He did exactly what He promised to do. And it says... And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. Now remember, this is Paul standing up in the synagogue and he's preaching all this. And so what he's saying here is it was by grace after all this mess that Israel had done, all this sin, all this disbelief, all this whining and complaining, the whole time God was bringing them there, he finally brought them to the promised land. He not only brought them to the promised land, but he conquered all their enemies for them. You know, they had to fight, but it was God who was conquering the enemies. And he gave them the land that he promised to give. It was fulfilled. If you read the end of Joshua, Joshua comes out after the conquest of the land and said, brothers, God has fulfilled all the promises that he made to Abraham and our father. We have the land. It's ours. And so uh, what we see is that he he gave them the inheritance that he promised to give them. If you go through the book of Joshua at the, at the end of it, he allotted them portions like this is going to be the land for the tribe of Benjamin. And this is the land for the tribe of Asher. And this is the land for the... He gave them their inheritance as they, they done it. Were they Were they faithful and believing and trusting as Joshua was taking the land? The go-to answer is always no. No, they were not. 
They did not drive out the people like God said to drive out. They left people in the land. They made deals with people they weren't supposed to make deals with. They were unfaithful. They were disbelieving. All kind of things happened throughout the book of Joshua. They did not, they did not obey the way that they were supposed to obey, but God still gave them the promise. So Paul starts off this sermon saying, look, God has always dealt with Israel by grace. He chose Abraham by grace. He delivered us from Egypt by grace. He suffered with us in the wilderness by grace. He gave us this inheritance, this promised land by grace. He has always dealt with us by grace. And so he's going to start there and then he's going to move quickly to judges. And after that, verse 20, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Has any of y'all ever read Judges, the book of Judges? Yeah. I'm sure some of y'all have. That is the weirdest book. Yeah. It's the strangest. It's all kind of strange, so strange stuff going on in Judges. And the reason, the theme of the book of Judges is everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't follow God. They didn't do what God said. They did exactly what they wanted to do. And it always led to disaster. If you look in Judges, there's a, a pattern. What would happen was the people would do what they want, fall into sin. God would deliver them over to an enemy like the Philistines or the Midianites or something. And they would go under, they'd be oppressed by this enemy. They would cry out to God because they were oppressed. And God would raise up a deliverer, judge. You know, he'd raise up Samson or Gideon or, or Ovid or, you know, all these different judges. He would raise up somebody to deliver them. And then after that judge died, what happened? They go, go right back to sinning. And then God would deliver them over to another. It's like a pattern over and over again. The whole book of Judges, you can see it. They sin, they're turned over in judgment, they cry out to God, God raises up and delivers over and over and over again. That was what judges is. Every time you read about a judge, they cried because they were under oppression. A judge was raised up to deliver them, and then they went right back into sin after it was over with and they were good. Don't don't we don't we do that today? Come on now, be honest. Yes. Right. It's like you you praying, you and I, I do the same thing. You praying, God help me, I'm gonna do whatever for you, and then when everything's cool, everything's cool, you go right back to the way you were. And then all of a sudden, here comes tragedy, here comes turmoil, here comes testing, bang, and then all of a sudden, God help me. And what does God do? As gracious as He is, He, he helps you. He raises up whatever, delivers you, and then what happens? I'm never going back to the way I was. And then three weeks, you're right back to the way you were. And so he's saying, look, God is dealing. He's dealt with our, our the, he gave us these judges over and over again when we didn't deserve them. It was by grace that he said, look, I'm going to save you from this enemy. I'm going to save you from that enemy. And they would go back into sin. Now, right now, if I'm Paul and I'm standing up and you're in my synagogue and I'm telling you these things, these are things that you've heard millions of times. All the Jews, all the God-fearers in the synagogue would be going, that's right, that's right, preach it, Paul, preach it, you do it, that's right. We, you know, they knew about all these things, they knew about God's grace to his people, they knew about God's work among his people, and so they would be, they would be amening and nodding their heads and all that kind of stuff. And so he says, he, he, they, gave them, they gave them judges until Samuel, and afterward they desired a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of uh, Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. God gave them their first king was 
was Saul. Interesting that Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is also Paul's Hebrew name from the tribe of Benjamin. And so they gave him Saul. Saul was actually a judgment on Israel, not a blessing. He was a judgment on Israel, but they didn't stay under that judgment. They, God raised up a king after his own heart. Who's king? What, what, who was that? David. It was David, excuse me. And he says, and, and when he had removed him, he Saul was a judgment upon the people because they wanted a king so they could be like the other nations. Uh, and so God didn't leave them in that state. He removed Saul after Saul sinned against him and brought up his king, David. It says, and when he had removed him, he raised him up, David, to be their king, whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all all my will of this man's seed. Now from David, this is the end of the historical discussion. I got through it quick too. I was pretty, I'm pretty proud of myself. That's the end of the historical discussion. From this moment on, from this verse on, he's going to preach Jesus from, from David's seed. Verse 23 says, Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, up until this point, the people in the synagogue, synagogue would have been saying, that's right, that's right, he's doing good, he's preaching exactly what... You know, they would have heard this sermon before. They would have heard the recounting of God's work through Israel and in the wilderness. They would have heard this. Now, all of a sudden, Paul changes gears and he says, from the seed of David, which is what they expected the Messiah to come from, God, instead of saying... They were used to hearing God will raise up a Messiah from the seed of David and he will deliver us from the powers of whatever and set up his kingdom. That's how these sermons usually ended in the synagogue. But that's not what Paul says. He uses the past tense. He says, from this seed of David, God has raised up his Savior, Jesus. And it says, verse 23... We just read it. He has raised up according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now this would have sent a shockwave. What? What did he just say? Was I hearing him right? You're saying that God raised up a... The Messiah has already come? The Messiah is already here. They weren't used to hearing these kind of things. They weren't used to hearing the fact that God, according to his promise, has raised up Jesus. Now, understand as we, we go forward, but understand, look what, what, what he's saying here. He's saying that all the promises to Abraham, all the promises to Isaac, Jacob, all the promises God made uh, in the wilderness, all the promises that he made to David, all the promises that God made throughout the Old Testament scripture have now been fulfilled in Jesus. They have now been brought to culmination. Uh, when God promised Abraham, I will, you know, through, through you, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What was he saying? Yeah, Abraham's great, 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 great grandson would be the Messiah, the one who would bring through all from your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God will preach the the gospel through His Messiah from you. David, He promised David. You know, David, there's going to be somebody from your seed that's going to sit on the throne forever and rule my kingdom forever. And who was that? 
It was Jesus. It was he was the fulfillment of all of these things. So when you and I, this is off the subject, but when you and I go through and we're reading this this <laughs> Old Testament, we're reading the story of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all those things. Uh, a lot of times we have a tend- tendency of thinking it's just these old stories about Israel and it really don't have anything to do with us. And God was just doing that uh, up until we can get to the New Testament. But the reality is that's your story. That's the story of your family. That's your uh, you are. Abraham's children if you are of the faith of Abraham. That's what Paul said in Galatians. And so these are these are written so that we may see God's grace and his promise and all that throughout the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Jesus. And these guys probably were like, they were getting offended. We're going to see that in a minute. Some believed and some didn't. But they were probably saying, well, did he just say that Well, it can't be that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the reasons why it couldn't be that Jesus was the Messiah, because in Malachi, it was prophesied that Elijah would come first. And he would be the one who made the way for the Messiah to come. And I don't see Elijah nowhere. And so he's, Paul's got his, he's got his uh, biblical interpretation a little mixed up. There's no Messiah now because Elijah hasn't returned. And Paul, anticipating this objection in verse 24, he said, When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he says, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Jesus himself said that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist was the prophesied Elijah that came as the forerunner to prepare the way. He was telling those people in the synagogue, yeah, Elijah has come. The forerunner to the Messiah has come. You remember what Elijah wore? What kind of clothes did Elijah wear? Sheepskin or lambskin or something. No. He had the cloak. No. Uh, He might have had a cloak. I don't know. But the Bible says, what did John the Baptist wear? uh, 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 Animal skin. Camel Camel hair. And what did he eat? Leather belt. That's exactly what the Bible says Elijah wore. And ate. Elijah wore camel hair, leather belt, ate locusts and wild honey. John the Baptist came, camel hair, leather belt, locusts and wild honey. And so it's... When the Jews celebrate Passover now, they still look for Elijah. They leave a door open. Yeah. Looking for Elijah to walk through it or fly through it or... Is he gonna fly through? Who knows? Oh no! Wow! It's like watch out, duck. Here he comes. <laughs> but Jesus said that if you believe it, John the Baptist was the spirit of Elijah that had come preparing the way. And so that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, <clears throat> "Look, I know you guys don't believe me." So is this the first time they've heard all this? I mean, yes, in in this area, it's not that big of an area. Wouldn't people have talked walking around and traveled and? Uh, possibly, but not many. Not many. This is, <clears throat> remember, uh, I wish I had a map. <clears throat> but you got Jerusalem down here. Jerusalem, if, if, uh, if, this, if this deal here is the Mediterranean Sea, Jerusalem is like right here. Okay, And Antioch, where Paul and, and Barnabas are from, is up here. And so they go out into the island of Crete, which is right here in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And now they're kind of going up, you know, uh, northwest. 
and into Galatia. So they're way up here in Galatia. And so these Jews probably haven't heard any of this. Paul is going and he is uh, the first one probably on the scene that is in this area saying, you know, the Messiah has come. He's preaching the gospel. And we're going to see here as we keep going in the scripture that uh, they, they're probably going to think, I think it's the next couple of verses, they're going to think if this is real, the guys in Jerusalem would have told us. The guys in Jerusalem would be celebrating. I mean, this would be this would be a worldwide event, you know, if this were if this were true. And Paul's going to ad- address that objection. Uh, where were we? Uh, Twenty five. He just talked about John the John the Baptist. He says, "Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoever among you feareth God, Jew and Gentile in the synagogue." To you is the word of this salvation sent. He's not just come to give them a history lesson. He's come to say, look, the time is fulfilled. God's promise is fulfilled. His salvation is here. And right now, you are hearing the message of that salvation. He says, to you, the word of the salvation is sent. Now, to Bruce's point, he said, well, wouldn't the, wouldn't the people in Jerusalem, I mean, we have leaders that are working in the temple. And the, if the Messiah came, they would have known it. They would have seen it. They would have proclaimed it. We would have heard about it. They would have sent word that all this had gone on and all this was happening. But Paul addresses that objection as well next when he says, for they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. They fulfilled the scriptures. And so what he's saying is, they fulfilled him by verse 28. And they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he, he should be slain. Now what he's saying is, these guys in Jerusalem... They fulfilled the very scriptures that get read every Sabbath. Every Sabbath, you know, you read the, the prophets. You read Isaiah about how the Messiah will come and he will suffer and he will bear iniquity. And by his stripes we're healed and he, he bore our transgression and, and God saw fit to crush him. And, and all these things are read in the prophets. And it says those leaders in Jerusalem, those rulers who should have known better more than anybody else, they fulfilled the scriptures by sentencing him illegally to die. The law and the prophets were read every Sabbath and they broke the law by wrongly trying this innocent man and sentencing him to death. They broke that law and they fulfilled the scripture that uh, the prophets had always spoken that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and he would be handed over to the Gentiles and he would bear you know, the, the sins and iniquity of the people and he would die and And all those things, they fulfilled the very scripture that gets read every Sunday. That's what he was saying. Or every Sunday. Every Sabbath. You know, the reason I said Sunday is because I'm thinking, you know, so many people sit in church. And you'll say, you know, you... Something from God's word will strike them and say, you know what, don't be this guy. Don't be the one that rejects. Don't be the one that uh, uh, rejects the Messiah. Don't be the one that rejects his salvation. Don't be the one that says, you know what, I'm okay because I'm doing good. Don't be that guy. And people so often go out and they do exactly what the scripture says not to do. Don't harden your heart. Don't go out and treat it like it's some uh, non-important thing. Like it's just a little, you know, it's just part of life and I 
not, whatever. And they do exactly what the Scripture says. They fulfill the Scripture themselves by disobeying and by treating this thing like it's, uh, it's a light thing and it shouldn't be worried about. And so uh, he says that these Jewish leaders, these people in Jerusalem, did exactly what the Scriptures say would happen. They fulfilled the Scripture in their, in their rejection of him. And so he says, he says, uh, all right, where am I at now? 28. And though they found no cause of him, they desired Pilate. I already read that. Verse 29 says, And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that sentence right there, would uh, it would really tick some folks off. Why does why do the people in Acts, why do the speakers, the apostles, the preachers, why do they always say tree instead of cross? Does anybody know? Does anybody know besides Jennifer? Yeah, that's right. I knew you knew because we talked about it. Did we talk about it? Jennifer, tell them. It's because if you were hung on a tree, you were considered cursed. That's right. Deuteronomy 17 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so what they were saying was that your Messiah, your Savior, the one that's come to deliver you from the kingdom, was hung on a tree and bore the curse of God. And that would have been so offensive to them. There's no way. There's no way that God's curse would be on his own son, his own Messiah. There's no way. But that's the point of the cross, isn't it? That's the point of the gospel. That that Jesus attaching it just because it's wood. Huh? They're attaching the word tree to the cross just because it's made of wood. Well, it's made of a tree. Right. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Well, they're they're referencing the fact that he bore the curse of God. Because that's what that's what Deuteronomy says that the one that's hung on a tree is cursed of God. They they actually they didn't crucify him in the same sense that we're thinking of the Romans crucify him, but they hung him out on a tree just like the Romans crucified. And so the curse of God would be on one who is hung out on a tree. So by using that language, they're referencing Deuteronomy 17, and they're saying this Messiah that has come, that's brought salvation and deliverance and all that kind of stuff, he bore the curse of God. And that would be so... When Peter said it earlier in Acts, man, it just sent shockwaves through the Jews. How dare you say that the Messiah would be cursed of God? There's absolutely no way that God would save His people or that He would bring deliverance and the kingdom to His people by using a cursed person. Remember, they were all about clean and unclean. They were all about holy and unholy. You can't come before God or do any work for God or anything like that if you're unclean. But that's exactly the point of the cross. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. That's the whole point of the cross is that he made him a curse. He cursed him with the punishment of sin so that we could be free. We could be free from the punishment of sin. We could be free from the penalty of sin. We could be free from all those things. And it says, when they fulfilled that what is written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. And it says, verse 30, but God 
raised him from the dead. Amen. So they judged him to be a curse. They judged him to be a criminal. They judged him to be uh, wicked. But God judged him to be the perfect sacrifice. And he vindicated him by raising him from the dead. They rejected him. God judged him as righteous and raised him, raised him from from the dead. And so he's he's preaching the gospel. The he judged his by by raising from the dead. God the Father showed that Christ's sacrifice was accepted. That was the victory. You see, uh, if he would have stayed dead, he could have said, "Well, you know, Jesus died for our sins," but. You know, how would we know that the Father accepted him? The reality is the Father raised him from the dead, exalted him to the right hand of God, gave him a dominion, gave him a throne, gave him all authority in heaven and earth, and is seated now next to the right hand of the Father, showing that he has been accepted by God. His sacrifice has been accepted. He is a worthy sacrifice for your sin and for your sin and for your sin and for the sin of the world. He has been accepted as the only payment for sin that we can uh, offer as we come before God the Father. That makes sense? So Paul is saying all this stuff. He's a... Uh, yeah, I got to quit. I knew I wasn't going to get far in it. He's saying all these things. And then he says, let's, let's end in verse 31. And then we'll pick up the rest of it next week. Uh, Paul starts making application in 32. And that's where they get all ticked off and try to kill him. Uh, some of them believe and some of them don't. But at the end here in verse 31, it says, And he was seen many days of them which came up from him from, with Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Not only did he raise from the dead, but he didn't just do it in some back country, uh, backwater country deal where nobody saw it. He appeared for 40 days to all of his disciples, all of his apostles. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he appeared to over 500 people at one time. And so there are people still living today, as Paul was preaching this message, that would have seen the resurrected Jesus, that would have encountered the resurrected Jesus. And that's one of the great proofs of his resurrection is that all this time, even the rest of the book of Acts, they're going to go preaching and teaching. We're going to go from city to city. And at this time, they're saying this guy saw Jesus and this guy saw and they were still alive. They could have said these guys are lying. I never saw anybody. They could have had proof at this time that those witnesses weren't correct. But no one ever produced a body. No one ever came and said they're not telling the truth. And these apostles ended up going to their death, understanding that they all they had to do to prevent themselves from dying was just say, hey, we made the whole thing all up. You know, now lots of people will die for a lie. You know, like you, you got guys that'll fly planes into buildings because of a lie. You know, we know that that's not true. But nobody's going to die for a lie that they know is a lie. You know what I mean? Like those guys in them planes, they believe what they're doing. And we know it's a lie. But nobody's going to allow themselves to be killed for something they know is a lie. I mean, if if the disciples made all this up and we saw him, whatever, you know, OK, whatever. But all you had to do in order to not be killed was we're going to see it here in Acts. All you had to do was say, you know what, we just made the whole thing up. We weren't whatever. And they refused to do that. It's possible that a man would die for a lie, but not a lie that he knew was a lie. You see what I'm saying? Does that makes sense. OK, so up until this point, Paul, Paul has gone through the whole Old Testament 
history. And I know that that's a hard lesson for us because I don't have no wonderful application for you. Uh, There is application, but it's kind of a dry. But he went from Abraham all the way down through David to preach Jesus. And so it shows us that he's connecting the dots from the Old Testament to the New. And as we come next week, starting verse 32, we're going to see how uh, he's going to preach Jesus to them and their response to that, whether they reject him or whether they accept him. Okay? Father, we love you. We thank you for this day and for your, your, your word. We just ask that you'd be with us today as we go into service and that you would uh, uh, anoint the preaching of your word and that you would use it for your glory. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.